Welcome to the Inspiring Women in Hospitality podcast. I'm your host, Noreen. Each episode, I bring to you an inspiring story of a woman who will share how she got started in hospitality. Her career journey, the highs and lows, the reality, tough choices she may have had to make, those who helped her along the way, her learnings, and much more. Each conversation, I let my curiosity run the show, and I will ask my guests to expand on topics that pique my interest. The final question that I ask each of my guests is who inspires them? That can be female, male, inanimate object, whatever inspires them. When you finish listening to this episode, I would love it if you could like the podcast on the platform you're listening on, subscribe or give it a follow to help increase visibility and ensure that the stories shared are reaching a wide audience. I believe that each and everyone has the capacity to be inspirational. On this episode, we hear from Anita, recorded in January 2024. We hear the two halves of her career, corporate and then entrepreneur, and the inspiration behind her latest book, The Call to Leadership, Unlocking the Leader Within in Times of Crisis. Hello, everyone. Noreen here. Today, I'm with Anita. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to have the conversation. My pleasure. Uh, so please tell us about yourself. Noreen, my story, I think, is actually very similar to yours. Um, I uh, was born and raised in Canada. My family is originally from Asia. So I spent my early, early years as a traveler in Duppers, going back and forth between Canada and India and meeting family. And then I started the education track in Canada was there, did my undergrad uh, there, and then serendipity took over. So as much as I now currently work in tourism and development, a strategist working in diplomacy, working between government and business, ultimately my connection to the industry started when I was teeny tiny. And that perspective of the world in terms of it being without boundaries, not just geographically, but socially and culturally and economically was very important. Um, so I left Canada in 1991 on holidays, went to Malawi to visit my father, who's an architect who was working with the Canadian government there. And I was hired by Unilever. And that started about a 10 to 12 year professional background in classic FMCG. So I was with um, initially IBM back in Canada, then Unilever, then Coca-Cola. And that was across multiple countries and then ultimately started consulting through one of Sir Martin Searle's WPP firms that was starting up an operation in South Africa. And so I began working with them, went on my own 22 years ago. I'm delighted to say that the ink is black and the two rules that I had when I started my business. Firstly, this is my vocation, not my profession. And secondly, I will only work with clients that I love. And those, those rules have served me very, very well because having numbers as the primary KPI of your business has inspiration for only so long and there is never enough. And you, that's not enough of a good sense of purpose for me, at least. So that's really a, um, a quick drive through of my professional career, but it has shaped who I am and my sense of gratitude for what I do. Thank you so much for that introduction. And I can see where we have a lot of similarities in our stories. Um, and I love the idea of that perspective without boundaries. And I think that's something that comes 
binds a lot of us together who are sharing their stories or who are part of this industry. It is it is the love of travel and wanting to experience different cultures, different environments, different societies. And I think when you get into that mind space, and I, I always see this from my own self, is that because I moved around so much when I was young and I was exposed to so many different cultures, it made me automatically a lot more adaptable, flexible, open-minded, and respectful of other countries and cultures because you know, we were the quote unquote foreigners coming into these these new lands, right? I mean, new for us, of course. And, you know, we need to adapt, not the other way around. And that really taught me a lot of, I guess, my foundational influence and how that's kind of shaped myself, my behaviors, my characters, and for which I'm indeed very, very grateful. I think what you've said, Noreen, is incredibly important um, because in, it, it was always the feeling of, Travel and hospitality gives us strength. It actually gives us humility because mm -hmm. the same way we can go into a new place and experience culture shock, we can impose culture shock. And so I think your point about respect, respect is very important. We have the blessing of being able to travel, which Mother Nature taught everyone when she grounded everyone for effectively two years. And so being able to go into someone's home, just because we have a passport, a credit card, a mobile phone, and possibly a visa, does not mean we can walk out, walk in without knocking on the door and taking our shoes off. And I think we, you're myself and, and you as Indian daughters, we are born with that sense of respect for culture, for elders, for codes. So our radar is much more you know, perfectly erect in that regard. And I think that's a really good thing. Because we as travelers, whoever we are, need to consciously recognize we are the guest and no sense of entitlement should ever allow us to walk into someone's home without knocking. I completely agree. And that actually got me thinking about a different point, you know, because we're both, you know, raised in one part of the world, from one part of the world, but then obviously then grew up in another part of the world. We also bring our culture with us into our households, right? Even though we're in a country that has completely different cultures as well. And most of my life, I felt completely confused. And in fact, I had my biggest culture shock when I moved to Europe. My first 20 years was in Asia and then coming to Europe where it's a, a lot more casual, you know, like I was telling you, I went to EHL and there, you know, you, you, you call your professors by the first name. And I was like, I'm not used to this. It's Sir, Madam, Miss, you know. And I had to unlearn a lot of things that I had grown up with versus now coming into a new culture and trying to adapt accordingly. Uh, what was that experience like for you between, you know, your, I guess, home experience and then the country you were in uh, experience? Indeed. And I love what you're saying as well, because to your point, as an Asian daughter, anyone elder is a sir, madam, uncle, aunt. Yeah. And we, we respect them and we approach them accordingly. To then have to go to, to Switzerland and not only speak to people as a first name, but kiss them three times <laughs> on the cheek. That's even, that's so it's, and I think it's, I, I, <laughs> You don't quite know what to do. Uh, and I love the, to me, it opens up a part of us. It opens up again, that adaptability and that respect that our job as travelers, we are social diplomats and it is our job to make people feel comfortable. It is our job to make people feel their value. And it is our job not to make people feel judged. And I think that's really important. So 
I think one also critical influence that changed me, not only being um, an Asian daughter growing up in Canada, I'm a rotary daughter. So my father was, has been a Rotarian since I was tiny. And he then went from being a Rotarian to a president of Rotary to a Paul Harris fellow. So I grew up within that Rotary network, which means even as a young child, I was constantly exposed to professionals. And I would always remember, and I'm sure you could picture these kind of scenes where your parents are having a dinner party or they're having friends over. And to go to bed at night as a child, you don't just sneak off and go to bed. You have to go and, and say goodnight to everyone, every uncle and aunt in the room, even if they were professionals, and give them a kiss and their hug or whatever it might be. And it would take half an hour <laughs> to get to bed. But you make that personal connection because especially as a rotary daughter, I wasn't a child. I was just a small person. And my father raised me in a way that enabled me to not only respect other people, but make sure that I was respected by them for what I engage or how I engage with them. So that sensitivity just carried with me, and which is why now working closely with the United Nations, it's an extension of that. And so I always love and think, you know, in the first 10 years of your life, how have you been shaped by that wiring? And I think as human beings, we naturally do judge just to make sense of things. So you walk in into EHL as this beautiful Asian girl. People hear your accent. It's not traditionally Asian. They see you. You don't look traditionally Asian. You're now in Switzerland. You then go across to Spain. Again, we're trying to make sense of it. And so I think with we who are these little cultural cocktails, if I can call them that, it's the sooner we can help people get past trying to figure us out, the better. And we do that by making other people feel comfortable so they stop worrying about trying to figure us out. So I think that it's a, that's a very convoluted way of explaining they're answering your question. But I think it is that, that feeling of it's not about me, which has helped me enormously to shape not just my career and my education, but where I am today and how then as a result, when I do work, whether it's in diplomacy or conflict resolution, it's always understanding the other side. And this is where I think leading to you and the incredible work you've done with your podcast and building this conversation over three years of disconnection, the issues around ESG and DEI have created awareness, but also the risk of separation because it's us and them. Mm. And that's where, to me, the, the opportunity is to either break through and achieve genuine equality of respect and all of these things beyond pantones and gender versus getting it wrong. That's why I think you're doing these conversations is very important to make sure we don't we don't create bingo cards. Yeah. No one wants to be in a job because of their pantone color or because they're wearing a beautiful dress and have a gorgeous haircut. That's not a good reason to put someone in a job. Yeah, and, and that's something we definitely need to be mindful of. And I, I could probably go off on a complete tangent here. But um, the one thing I will say from what you just shared is I'm going to be using cultural cocktail in the future, for sure. <laughs> um, and bringing it back to your career. So let's, let's, I guess there's two halves, right, here. So we've got the first half where with Unilever, Coca-Cola, like, so your corporate career. And then obviously, then you went on to set out on your own. So from the first I guess, half of that career. Um, tell us a little bit about 
you know, the career journey in terms of like, you know, how did you get the positions, the opportunities, what growth did you have during that time? So, you know, those women who are also on a corporate career, um, what are some of the learnings that you can share uh, with them? There's there's a technical answer to that question, and there's a very official answer. Um, but I think what is going to help your listeners and your viewers more is the what what are the connection points? Mm-hmm. So I again I went to university, started my first job with IBM, was on contract, um, and then went off to Malawi to see visit my father because quite honestly, Canada was about to go into a recession. So as much as I wanted to go back and do my masters, everyone was going back to school because jobs were falling apart. And so that's when I went off to Malawi, and I knew then it was interesting, Noreen, because I was there with my father at a Rotary meeting, funnily enough. And he, of course, had in the meeting all these different professionals. And there was a, an executive from Coca-Cola there and an executive from Unilever. And I thought, I wanted to do my MBA, but I actually thought I really like international business. I love the concept of business across different countries and different industries. So I thought, who can I talk to who's in this club just to have a chat, just have a chat with no agenda to say, okay, I'm going to go back to Canada. What should I do? And I serendipity, I chose the gentleman from Unilever. And so I went to visit him, beautiful Dutchman, who was the uh, managing director at Unilever in Malawi. And we started chatting and he started interviewing me and I didn't understand it. And I was a bold, you know, I just left university. I had my job at IBM. My life was set. It's fine. So I became very bold and started interviewing back and ended up getting the offer. And I thought, well, I'll go back to Canada, see if I should take it or not. And then as soon as I got back to Canada, it was clear of, with the recession taking place, take the opportunity. And that was a launch pad. So I actually left Canada, went to work with Unilever on a local salary, so not as an expat, lived with my father for the first two years, which was amazing because it shifted our relationship, and got into the Unilever network. And so the classical take the job because of the salary and the position disappeared. I mean, I used to joke about by the time I left Unilever in Malawi, we'd gone through a whole conflict in Malawi. Um, Democracy was being enforced by the IMF. We went out of dictatorship. And I would joke that when they did their annual reports for um, Unilever at headquarters, they should indicate that I'm a a cost-saving project because the way in which the Quacha had devalued against the US dollar and the pound, I was probably the cheapest international employee they had on the books. But I was able to do my master's through Unilever. I was able to get the global exposure. So the equity of the job was far richer than the salary, if that makes sense. And that then went on to getting hired by Coca-Cola. And then the rest is history. But I think the important thing was, what are the measures of success? And that's why, again, those two rules I set up front. My leaving Canada, I left one of the wealthiest countries in the world to go to one of the poorest. And as my chairman at the time said, he said, how do you feel getting out of a Rolls Royce and riding a bicycle? I thought, what a great analogy. And But I found that the opportunities that were created by getting off the traditional track were exponential because the way I valued the opportunity was different. Who am I meeting? What countries am I getting to? What job exposure? I would never have risen up the Unilever, excuse me, the Unilever ladder as rapidly as I did if I'd done it in Canada. There's no way. So I've seen that I'm a big believer that, you know, God sends us messages, 
often through very strange messengers. But don't discredit the messenger. Something might happen that you suddenly think, I need to talk to this person. That to me has been very important and always, 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 Noreen, I always say to people when they're determining what they want to do with their careers or with their lives, people that inspire you, just ask them for coffee. Don't go with an agenda. Just ask them for coffee. And if they're wise enough, which they usually are, they'll know something's going on. But don't go with an agenda and just let the conversation go. Create a little piggy bank, keep feeding it with coins, and use that as a way of creating not just network conversations. It gets you exposure. It also builds up your own personal brand about what do you want, what don't you want? Who do you want to be connected with? Who don't you? Because often it's the don'ts that are more valuable than the do's. So that's what I found has been very, very important in, in not just the work that I've done, but the coaching I do for especially young people wanting to build their careers. Get a piggy bank. As soon as you graduate, buy yourself a piggy bank and start taking people for coffee. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think that's exactly what I did when I did my 40s gap year is I invited everyone I could possibly come into face to face with because I traveled to quite a few destinations in that one year and just have a coffee and just have a chat. And I only learned that at 40. I wish someone had told me that at 20. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that. Um, it's great to hear it from somebody else as well. well it, does, it does have a risk of creating a coffee addiction early on. So you <laughs> That's true. Yourself. <laughs> yes, I drink a lot more coffee now than I did even two years ago. Um, and then moving on to, I guess, now the second part of your career when you decide to go out on your own. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that journey and, you know, how did you choose which area you wanted to go into and who are you working with uh, now? Indeed. Um, I've always loved, as like you, just what travel offers. And what I've always known and I picked up very early on was the fact that our travels, is it's not about the tourist. It's about the impact that tourism has on the destinations itself. And so when I was with the consulting firm I was with, um, AVG, I was doing a, a global branding project. Um, nation branding was very strong at the time. And it was May 23rd, 2002. And I was at the World Bank in Washington. I'd flown across and I was speaking to one of my stakeholders. And I was doing an interview. And I had my little, my little concept boards of creating a national brand and this and that. And he was amazing. Beautiful man, David Bridgman. I never forget the names of the people who are really the bookmarks in my life. And he said to me, he said, this looks great, great proposition, beautiful opportunity. What's the ROI? And Noreen, it was like a bolt of lightning just broke through the room. And I thought, you're absolutely right. And I don't have the answer. Because if we're creating a nation brand to develop the nation, it's not about how many tourists, how many campaigns, how, we don't bank tourists. What is the impact they are having in terms of job creation, GDP, investment attraction, all that? And because I couldn't answer that question, it wasn't a criticism of the firm I was with because they didn't do economic impact. It just meant if I believe he's right, I have to have the courage to do the right thing and go on my own. And so I did with great gratitude for, to the firm for the, what the experience they'd given me and the access they'd given me. And I think one of the smartest things I did, which I would really encourage young people to do as they start their careers... I reached out to two executives that were former stakeholders on the same project, 
and I took them for coffee independently. And I just said to them, I want to work with you, not for you, but with you, because it's not what you do. One was a national property company, which is incredible. One was a head of a a chairman of a, a, a global banking firm. It was how they did it. This woman, Pam Golding, who fundamentally shaped my career, and it's just, she's an icon here in South Africa in the property industry and business per se. She was a lady. And when I would meet with her, Noreen, my back would straighten and my voice would soften because I've never believed that a successful woman has to be a man in a skirt. I don't believe that's necessary. And one of my clients said to me once, she said, you are unashamedly feminine. And I love that comment. I love the fact that you will always see me with my red nail polish on, with my high heels and my skirt on stage, because that's when I feel I'm, I'm me. I'm absolutely centered in me. And so I worked with this firm because it was the how of what she did, not the what of what she was doing. I didn't want to develop a consulting firm in property, but she taught me the etiquette of being an exceptional business person in terms of how you engage with others, as did this other gentleman, Mike Thompson. And so that to me was a defining part of shaping the rest of my career. I then chose what I wanted to do professionally, intellectually. But to me, when people ask, that the, and I say this humbly, the success of my business, it's the how. My clients know how hard I will work for them. My clients know I will show up for them. My clients know how protective I am. They also know my etiquette. They also know my my respect for protocol and that I will never, ever, ever make them feel anything but strength. And that to me has been over the last 22 years, incredibly valuable. Um, and so I do believe the first years in our career are about shaping our, not just what we want to do, but how we want to do it. And that I think is vital, especially for young women as we start in our careers. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I love what you said, that unashamedly feminine. And I completely agree. You don't have to be sick yet. You know, to be successful, you don't have to be a man in a skirt. Like embrace our femininity, embrace the things that what makes us, us. And look, if you want to wear a a pair of pants or trousers, I should say, go for it. You know, whatever makes you, you and makes you comfortable. Um, So thank you so much um, for sharing that. And I probably will come back to the topic of gender um, in a moment. But I do know that you've recently released a book. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about that. Bless you. Thank you very much. Um, The book is called The Call to Leadership, Unlocking the Leader Within in Times of Crisis. It's a long title and kind of uh, subtitle, but there's a backstory to that. Um, My belief is this, Noreen, and I think you, you are one who will tap into this immediately. We are all born with little wires in our brains. We all have our wiring, but something in our life fuses our wiring. It's like those rubber encasements. And I, like you, saw when COVID hit, Our industry was annihilated. It was completely, you know, 100% border closure, 16,000 aircraft, people stranded, 6 million people had to be evacuated and returned home and repatriated through aviation that wasn't even flying. And, And I, like you, I couldn't not jump in. You know, we instinctively had to do something. And I have never worked harder in my entire life. Everything my business was doing before in terms of destination development and branding and investment attraction, all of that changed. And it became about, quite honestly, executive coaching for leaders during crisis, because leaders who also got COVID, who also lost their lives and lost family, 
were being looked to for answers at a time when no one could even figure out the questions. And I stepped up and I, I it was tireless. And um, I noticed other leaders that were also doing that. They jumped in and they just couldn't not, not be present. I also saw leaders step out. So as much as the stepped up happened, the stepped out happened. And I thought it's in their wiring. Whatever, we can't judge people. It's in our wiring. And my firm belief as well is that Mother Nature didn't do this by accident. You know, she might have a really bad sense of, you know, a temper and sense of humor, but she's not cruel. So how do we make sure we do not waste these two years, two and a half years that we had and all these webinars and all these conversations about what we won't do when the world opens up again? How do we not waste that? But importantly, and very importantly, how do we make sure that the leaders who literally were tireless, we've never had a two-year sustained invisible crisis like this that went through wave after wave after wave of tragedy, hope, tragedy, hope, tragedy, hope. These leaders had to keep going. And I thought, now that the world is going to be opening up, we're going to forget them. And no one stopped and said, thank you. And I just thought, damn it, if I do that, I will not let that happen. So. I decided that I wanted to write my next book, and it was on basically what are the learnings that we can take from leaders who lead through crisis, because these people had wiring in them that was exceptional, and I knew something had happened in their life that caused them to react this way this time. So I reached out to 25 C-suite leaders, the highest in the world, that are friends and colleagues of mine, because I needed to poke their underbellies with important personal questions. So Willie Walsh, the director general of IATA, uh, Puneet Chathval, the CEO of IHCL and Thaj, Gavin uh, Tolman, the CEO of the Travel Corporation, Matthew Upchurch, the CEO of, of Virtuoso, Julian Simpson, the WTTC president and chair. So people that, again, we worked with that don't usually get personal. And I wrote to them and I just said, listen, you know me. I have watched you and worked with you. You have led in a way that has exposed your wiring, and I want to understand more. Please, will you accept an interview? What was incredible was you're lucky if you get 50% yes rate. I had an 80% yes rate. And so people like Paul Griffiths, the CEO of Dubai Airports, I mean, amazing leaders from around the world, said yes. And I had 40 minutes one-on-one -on -one with them, and they revealed some of the most unbelievable stories. So Fahad Hamidadeen, the CEO of Saudi Tourism, who people know is this incredible authoritative leader championing Saudi's development, the way he spoke personally, his people have never heard. Because importantly, all of these leaders didn't do it for the profile. They didn't do it for the PR. They couldn't not do it. And so I wanted to understand how can we learn from their wiring to take us forward, but not just why they were superheroes. How did they struggle? And so we as leaders, when we're struggling, how do we get through that? And so the book was born. It was officially launched November 2nd uh, through Amazon globally. So it's in all the possible formats. The, one of the funniest stories behind it is that I did an audiobook version. It took me 21 hours to record it in studio. But the actual book is only seven hours because I kept crying. I kept I kept choking up because I would be reading all of these deep stories of these amazing leaders who let me in to confess they were scared, to confess their other leaders let them down. It was as so I kept choking up and the production team was, oh, for the love of God, <laughs> do that again, do that again. Um, but it's been amazing to see with the launch 
how excited these leaders are because they again they never wanted their staff to stop and say thank you but it's nice nice for their staff to know what they did for them so it's been very 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 special and so now we are officially launched we had a launch at the UNWTO general assembly we had one at the WTTC global summit the honorable premier of the western cape here in south africa did one because he's actually in the book and it's been remarkable the response has been beautiful across business government education and media because it's not a book about covid and it's not a book about travel and tourism those are just common canvases that allow us to understand why do some people step up and fight when others choose flight and freeze and how do we learn from that because there will be a next time whether it's a global tragedy or it's a personal tragedy there will be more crises and there are ways of there are ways of getting through them stronger so that was my labor of love and at least i can say to mother nature i delivered and to these 20 leaders and leaders around the world thank you thank you so much for sharing that and sharing the journey it, it i think for me it's also the recognition for that work i mean i think it's beautiful that you're you're honoring these leaders and that we're learning from their experiences and that you know there you're absolutely right there will always be a crisis <laughs> History has shown us that. So what can we learn from these incredible people that you had in this book? Because those are the stories we want to hear. You know, it's not necessarily just what we read in a book about strategy or about, you know, crisis management, but the stories, because those are the ones that are really going to hit home, hit our hearts, and that we're going to take away with us. So thank you so much for for writing that book as well. Thank you. And it clearly it's something that... that it resonates with your way of thinking as well. Because I think what was really important, Noreen, was the fact that the last question that I asked in each of the interviews was, why did you say yes? You know, you've done hundreds of interviews during COVID. Why did you say yes? And without question, everyone was the same. So whether it was Ronnie Rod from, you know, the former president of CNN International, or again, Willie Walsh or Dubai, like someone like a Paul Griffiths from Dubai Airports, they had in May of 2020, the same number of people going through, air, through the airport in the entire month that used to go through in four hours. So that, I mean, the numbers just shrank. So everyone would be asking him, what's happening with the airport? What's happening with Emirates? How are the numbers? How's the recovery of employment? No one would stop and say, Noreen, how are you? And all of these, these leaders who I, were, I was blessed to interview, they knew me. They knew I was going to ask. And what it said to me is that whatever a leader is, whether you're head, you're head of the United Nations or the head of the union at the school, everyone is human. And they just want someone to say, how are you? And they had something they needed to say back. And that to me was the gift of the book. Everyone had something they hadn't said in hundreds of interviews and they were prepared to share it. And what was incredible is that none of these leaders, not one of them, Asked to see the manuscript before it went to print. They all trusted, you've got this. And it's been, again, such a joy seeing their excitement as this has been launched across the world. That is really wonderful. And yeah, I think it's like giving them that platform for their voices um, to be heard as well, which is, as you said, very similar to exactly what I'm doing here for women's voices to be heard. And with the topic of women, Oh, I'm debating if I should ask you this question because I feel like it could go it could go in any direction. 
But I guess I will ask you, I will ask you this question instead. What is your, what is your hope? What is your vision for gender balance in our industry? My hope, my vision, my hope, which is, which is more about the principle is that is, it is, it is truly sincere. I do not believe that a group of angry women banging on a boardroom door is going to get the door opened. If I'm on the inside, I'm not because that's going to scare me. The only way the door is going to be opened is if the men open the door. And I truly believe that unless this is done, unless balance is achieved without anger and judgment and hostility and blame, it will never be emotionally balanced and it will never be fair. Because someone will always feel victimized. All it is is taking the imbalance, victimizing those who happen to be in a situation that gave them that position. I think my my vision, my my great aspiration is that it's no longer an issue. And I think it's very much a matter of, and I believe this firmly, you know, again, you know, we as women, I was doing an interview with some students at a university um, in in Italy. And it was three gorgeous young girls, and they were talking about my background and my career, and it was something totally different. But they mentioned, they said, you know, it's so good to hear a woman who's done well. And they were then were diving into the next questions, which were about something about government. And I said, I just want to stop you there for a second. I said, I believe I have done well in my career because I am a woman. And the way in which I engage with, with people, with men, is a way that emotionally connects with them. And I'm fearful that this quest for balance, there will never be balance. There will always be some imbalance. But can we find the right balance at the right time so that we're constantly making sure we're not just jumping off the teeter-totter and thinking we're done? It's like in countries like South Africa and others like Bangladesh. There will never be empowerment, truly. There will never be true transformation. It's a constant changing dynamic. Because what South Africa, what Bangladesh, what these countries need now is very different than what they needed 10 years ago and what they need 10 years from now. And Mother Nature, having broken every country around the world, is enabling us to rewire in a way that allows ethics to be a critical part of the DNA of balance, not quotas and not judgment. So my, my hope is that it truly is part of the DNA of what we are doing and not part of a scorecard a KPI that stands alone. I don't believe that's genuine. Thank you. I think that is, that's completely in line with what my hope and my vision is. So thank you for expressing it perhaps much better than I could have. And I will move on to my final question um, and ask you, who inspires you? Interesting. Um, I, 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 when I think about that question, there, there are many people that come to mind. But I think the answer to that is simply people in positions of power, whether it's government or business or NGO, whatever it might be, who feel a profound sense of responsibility to use that power to shift others. So if I think about it right now, to me, one of my heroes right now, and I called him out in the book um, several times, and I actually sent him a copy, even though I don't know him personally, is the Director General of the World Health Organization. He was a tireless champion that got the world to stop and pay attention to the crisis in 2020 and carried us through and made it very clear that, that the pandemic is not over everywhere, anywhere, unless it's over anywhere, everywhere, sorry, 
It's not over anywhere unless it's over everywhere. He now has become one of those most unbelievable voices around the crisis in Gaza because he speaks from the point of view of the hospitals are being bombed. Newborn babies are not able to survive. Healthcare workers are trying to keep people. Please, we need to do something. And so he he forces those who have the, the choice to look away to look forward and, and do something to act. And so that to me, that's what inspires me because, you know, I was born into this life, not by choice, by, by, by circumstance, like yourself. We are in remarkable positions of comfort. We're in remarkable positions of opportunity. We're in remarkable positions of influence. We have to use that as a basis of multiplying goodness, not just for the good of our careers. And so people who I see doing that melt my heart and get my back to straighten and and to unfortunately take my filter away as well. Um, so genuinely, thank you for doing that because you've been doing that. And I love, I love the title of your podcast because it's inspire women. There's an, you, and you probably did it on intentionally. There's a double entendre yep. there. Yes. And I think that's really beautiful because it is, it's, it's an alchemy. It's a constant alchemy. And, you know, for all of us who have the blessing of talking to you, you remind us of not just the blessing we have, but the responsibility we have. So thank you, because it is easy to look away now that the world's busy trying to rebuild. Again, thank you for explaining it much better than I could. And thank you so much for sharing uh, your story with us. Um, I am thoroughly inspired, and I'm sure many others will be as well. And thank you for your support. Thank you for giving me the time. And thank you for the chance to meet you. Um, I'm really grateful for that. Thank you so much for listening. I leave every interview thoroughly inspired, and I hope you were too. You will find a new episode released every Tuesday, so be sure to come back and listen weekly. Music